Yes, welcome to BPM. Your host, Astalio. Today I've got a great guest, a distinguished gentleman who apparently is 73, but I know you're pulling my leg. I know you're pulling my leg. No, I'll be 74 next month. No, man. You're like 50. You're like 50. That's it. Well, you know, I, I'm liking you already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try and re reel my guests in and I get them to give me money after. That's the plan. <laughs> so how you doing, man? Um, Maurice Dorsey. Yes, and it's D-O-R-S-E-Y. Yes, Dorsey. Did I, pronounce, did I pronounce it correctly, Dorsey? Okay, yes, because I think it had a W in the mark somewhere in, in there. It had a W, D-O-W-S-E-Y or something. Did I, I, some, you know, I just, I still, I still spout it like that. I cannot believe it. Uh-huh. Actually, I changed it on the um, on the phone. Oh, no, okay. I, I just was, I just wanted to make make sure your guests were aware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, could, I could not believe it. All these mistakes. Anyway, so uh, what brings you to my beautiful home today? Well, I'm I'm really happy that you uh, accepted my uh, invitation or your invitation to me. We accepted each other. I'll put it that way. Yes, uh, yes. I'm the author of three books. Um, and the embodiment of my books tend to be around subjects who have had adversity in their life and they've overcome their adversity uh, and become really rather successful considering where they started in the race of life. Mm -hmm. And the first book is called Businessman First and it's about the first African-American man who ever issued stock publicly on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay. And and he was born in 1916, uh, and he was born in Atlanta, Georgia, a southern state. Mm -hmm. And he had adversity trying to start his business. So he went from zero to a multimillionaire um, over his lifetime and issued stock on the New York Stock Exchange, which was amazing because he dealt with racism in the American South in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and his family relocated from from. Atlanta, Georgia to Ohio, and he left Ohio with his aspiration and went to New York. And then from New York, he came to Baltimore and settled and went into real estate and so forth. My second book, oh, and my first book is, is a biography. So it's a, a true story. Everything in there is factual and we'll elaborate on that more. Uh -huh. My second book is called From Whence We Come. And I tease many of my readers and, and fans and friends that it's, it was really a therapy for me yeah. because it's a novel, but it's based off of my true story. And it's the story of an African-American gay man whose mother always said to him in his childhood that she never wanted to have him. And oh, of course, God. his ability to understand what this, his mother was saying to him was sort of traumatic to him because, you know, most children want to be wanted by their mother. They want to be loved by their mother. Mm -hmm. And um, so the story covers three generations of her background with her mother and father to explain how she came to be the person that she became. And then she married and had children and then and then me. And my third book um, is called Of Time and Spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the newest one. And uh, I'm happy to say that all three of my books just were selected for the 2021 uh, independent press awards, which I, I mean, I was just shocked beyond belief that 
the all three of them would be accepted in the categories that they were. Mm -hmm. And when and even though they weren't winners, like number one, uh, distinguished favorites are considered like a runner up or an honor. And and so, you know, we got the little C. I bought the little seals to go on my book to to indicate, you know, when I'm selling the book that, you know, it's an award winning book. So I'm really quite quite pleased with that. So I'm on your show to market and promote and advertise my books and in Rome and Brussels, Vienna and Italy and everywhere you are in Europe. And <laughs> and I put on a necktie just so that all of all of the European people know that I have uh, I got dressed up for your podcast. Yeah, yeah. you got class. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I read your um uh, paragraph that you sent to me and I was like I gotta get this gone I gotta get this gone it was very nice and uh, interesting of course so let's let's go back because like you said you're you're 50 years old <laughs> <laughs> lies lies but anyway I like them anyway <laughs> <laughs> so like when did you realize like okay I want to be a I want to be a writer did that come quite young or was that something that you learned over time? Because I, like, I don't know when you wrote your first book, but at, at 50, like, I don't know, like. Well, you, you know, your question is very good. It, it wasn't really on my agenda. No. Uh, the wheel of my writing got started with my first book about Henry Parks, who's the African-American businessman that I was referring yeah. to earlier, my first book. Yeah. And, he was, he was a friend, a mentor, but moreover, he was someone that I looked up to because it was 30 years difference in his age and my age. And I met him after I had graduate, graduated under graduate school. Mm-hmm. So to me, he was like an old man, but the, the cachet and my interest in him was that he was the only African-American man that I had ever knew that was a multimillionaire and had issued stock on uh, New York Stock Exchange, and he owned a business and he sold his products from as far north as uh, Connecticut, New York, Connecticut area, and as far south as Northern Virginia. And um, when he got sick in his older age, in, in the uh, late 80s, uh, he said to me, he, he said, Maurice, I need 15 more years because he wanted to expand his business. He wanted it to be a nationwide product versus a East Coast product. And he initially uh, built a refrigeration plant in the, in the South, which was where he was from. Yeah. And the KKK came along. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. but, but, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, they came around and burned the plant down and said that they didn't want his nigger sausage on you know, in the South. So rather than him feeling defeated, which was a part of his adversity, mm-hmm. He chose to turn the market around and move north. So he moved from Baltimore to Delaware, to Philadelphia, to New Jersey, to New York, you know, to Boston and up the East Coast. And he and New York was his biggest market. So. um, So but but before he died, he wanted he had plans to go to Chicago and Detroit. Next, he was going to go west. And when he was dying, he said to me, he needed this 15 more years. Well, I was 30 years younger than he. I had no idea of old age gerontology being sick and Parkinson's disease. I knew nothing about, which is what he passed away from. 
And I just opened my mouth sort of naively and says, well, Henry, don't worry about it. I'll write a book and you will live forever. But I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't an English major. I had no aspirations of being a writer, but I had promised this man on his, you know, his sick bed, almost yeah. died, that I would write this book. <laughs> but I was young and I had a career. I had to go to graduate school and I had to go to work and do everything that people um, you know, when they're 25 and 30 years old, buy a house, buy a car, buy clothes, go on vacation. So I wasn't thinking about writing a book. But when I retired from the federal government in 2012, I made it the very first thing that I did when I retired. And I sat in my house, I pulled out all of these files, I spread them all over my house, and I sat down because I figured at that point, I was at the age, I didn't know how much longer I was going to live. Mm -hmm. So I figured I, before I died, I better write this man's book. So I did. And it was a struggle for me. I mean, it was really a struggle. And I was afraid and I self-published. And, you know, then it, I learned so much in the publishing industry from the standpoint that, I mean, I didn't know about copyright laws and, and Library of Congress numbers and mm -hmm. registrations here and there and marketing and promoting. And I actually thought the hard part of publishing a book was writing it. I just thought, hey, <laughs> all the energy I put in it, it seems like somebody out there would want to buy it, but that did not work. Um, you know, you have to market the book and the market, when the book is published, that's when the work begins. You know, yeah. you have to really get out here and push it, which is why I'm, I'm here. So that started. But after I felt that sense of victory and, and I had come from my circumstances, which was not really I mean, I didn't grow up wealthy or richer with a silver spoon. Uh, we weren't starving and poor, poor on welfare, but we certainly weren't rich. And I mean, we, we were at a socioeconomic level that it left much for me to aspire to because yeah. I didn't grow up with it, you know? So, um, so that's how it started. And then I wrote the second book and then I felt a sense of accomplishment there and, and being able to explain my story in a, in a novel, you know, based mm -hmm. off of a true story. And in that writing, uh, I had self revelations about myself when I wrote from whence we come, because being an African-American gay man, I was familiar with the struggle really of both. I mean, simultaneously, because yeah. people don't believe me when they say that I knew when I was four years old that my proclivities were toward males versus mm -hmm. females, even though I loved women, danced with women, took them to proms and beauty, you know, escorted <laughs> them places and wore corsages and did all open the car door and everything my mother taught me to do. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I knew who I was, but then where I grew up, I grew up in the state of Maryland and mm. I grew up in a rural county. And uh, so I viewed myself as pretty much a country boy. I didn't see myself as an urban, but the urban aspects to, of me came from my parents because my mother was from Washington, D.C., which is where I now reside. Mm -hmm. My dad was from Baltimore. So they, their experiences and their journey, they raised more or less urban children. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, their children weren't, you know, the, the stereotypical farmer, cotton, oh. you know, 
smoke tobacco or, you know, we weren't farmers. My dad was military for a brief period of time and we lived on military property. Um, but I still went to segregated schools. We lived in segregated housing in the earlier part of my life. So that's where the wheels got started for this writing. I know that's a long winded answer to your simple question. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry. I asked. <laughs> all right young no 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 i'm glad i'm glad you gave me a detailed answer because you know i like it when you give me a detailed answer because it gives me something to listen to so i'm i'm very um open to longer answers yeah 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 no well i you know i i like to talk too so i'm really kind of guilty so you might have to kind of cut me off when you need to ask your next question based off of time but but that's how i started writing it was henry parks and i guess in a uh, a weird kind of way. It was because of him, uh, someone who I respected and looked up to and, you know, who was wealthy and rich. And, you know, he exposed me to many things, to, to private, club, um, private clubs and country clubs and golf and tennis and, oh, and, yeah. and, and ticketed events that I never would have been able to afford. So um, my promise to him is how I got started with writing. And um, I actually kind of enjoy it, but it's it's an interesting um, feel of employment. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's really it's it's not an easy field to break into. But I'm going to keep writing, and I worked for 42 years. I'm retired from the federal government, and so I'm not writing necessarily to earn money. But it does do my ego yeah. real good when somebody <laughs> buys my book. Hint, yeah. <laughs> you can buy all three of them. They're award-winning. They're on Amazon. <laughs> you can buy them in Europe. <laughs> Are they translated into German, though? I'm sorry? Are they translated into German and multiple languages? Oh, yeah, you can translate them. You know, you, you're young. You're with technology. All you have to do is press translate and voila. <laughs> you know, you, know, you no said... <laughs> you, said, you said something about with, with Henry Potts when he um, asked you, well, he basically said you need, he needs 15 years. And you was like, I'll write a book so you can live longer. Why don't you just say, look, I'm young. I've got 15 years. Give me all your ideas and I'll carry them on. Or is that what happened? Well, no, because, you know, his starting a business was very difficult for him. And I, I, and I wrote in my book, at the end of his life, he ended up selling his business. Mm -hmm. But I know that when he sold the business, and I wrote this in my book, it was like cutting off a limb off of his body. I'm sure mm -hmm. it just pained him because this was what he had given birth to, you know. And, and his business was a meatpacking product, which was pork. He sold sausage, pork sausage. And the reason why he came up with that idea is because at that time in America, in the South, people of color were doing more laborious work. I mean, they yeah. were with, uh, and they, and they got up in the morning and they had eggs and bacon and breakfast, I mean, grits and, you know, heavy foods. They weren't having watercress sandwiches and, and English breakfast tea. Mm -hmm. So he thought that he would be feeding the population. And of course, he was making a profit off of it by selling the product, but it would be something that was beneficial. So, um, so, and I had absolutely zero ideas about running a business, but um, he sold it to the Noren Corporation, which is in the book, and it changed hands several times. And um, it, it, it subsequently died. And so his, so the request 
or the promise rather that I made to him of writing his book still has him in the Library of Congress. I mean, if anybody had any interest or was interested in black businesses, the book is dedicated to youth. Uh, I think it should be in all of the public schools for young Definitely. people into business. And I don't know about in Europe where you are, but, um, but in the United States, uh, people of color still need to get more ingratiated in business enterprises so that you know, we can uh, impact our neighborhoods and communities and our children and our schools, and we have resources and money to put into neighborhoods and communities. And that was something that Henry did a great deal of. So I think, you know, I mean, I personally think it's a great book. It's somewhat, um, well, it's, it's biographical, but it's almost like a gigantic resume of all of his accomplishments, his process, the sales, the marketing, publicity, promotion, boards of directors that he served on at the national level and so forth. So there you go. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's um, definitely should be in all the schools. Well, I just want to answer your question about how is it in Europe? In, in, in um, like I was raised in England, UK, United Kingdom. I now live in Germany. But I tell you, we're not represented one bit like black people, black history, anything like that. Anything that, like that started now, like the last year because of the whole Black Lives Matter movement. But before then, if you tried to find out any African history, all you'd hear is we was all slaves. And that was it. We was all right. slaves. We all ended up in America. And for some reason we're here now, we were slaves. And that was uh, it. So, right. Um, well, yeah. see that there was no black history in the public schools. I mean, there, I mean, most people that have bought, have purchased this book, never even knew that Henry Parks was a man of color. He was a very handsome man. I'm gonna show you his picture, but he was a very handsome man. This is, this is Henry Parks. <laughs> yeah, that's Henry Parks. That's the cover of my book. So you will recognize it when you go on Amazon and purchase several copies for your friends for Christmas. <laughs> so, um, so he, but you know, he went to Ohio State University and, um, he was a roommate with uh, Jesse Owens, but but they couldn't live on campus. And so, I, I mean, the point is that at that time in American history, mm -hmm. uh, there there was no black history. I mean, in taught in schools. And so many, uh, I mean, until very recently, um, the importance of black writing, black poetry, black podcasts, or people of color who are advertising and marketing and promoting the work of people of color is, is very important. And I think we need to do more of it. And I encourage all of your listeners to write their own stories too. And I will promote this podcast too, if you send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll definitely get a copy of that. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, going back a little bit. So you was a young man, you went to study and then you got into the business world. So you became a businessman at some point. I was or he was? No, you was. Yeah, he, he went to Ohio State and- No, um, no you, you was a businessman as well. Oh, I'm a businessman now, but my career, I worked for 42 years in, in education. I worked in all levels. I worked in public education, junior colleges, four-year colleges, okay. state government, and federal government. So my career was in education. So I was really considered a bureaucrat. I didn't have an independent business of my own. My desire when I was a child was to have an interior design business, which is why 
I didn't have any inclinations to take over Henry's business or even attempt to take over it because that just wasn't the trajectory of my life at that point in time. But I found a great deal of satisfaction in educating people. And uh, so now that I'm writing the books, I'm a businessman. Uh, and my accountant keeps telling me, you know, you're a business now, you know, because I'm filing taxes and I have income and, mm-hmm. you know, I have merchandise and I'm selling. So, you know, you're, re- you're retired from your career, but you're still working. You're not really retired. You are a businessman. So I'm an author and I like it very much. And, um, and I'm planning a fourth book. And so keep me in mind because we'll do a podcast for my fourth book. Definitely. Definitely. I hope that this podcast springboards you into stardom. And you could sell. I don't know what the, the number of sales you have to get to attain a number one bestseller, but I hope that that happens from this podcast. Yes, well, I hope so too. I, I'm looking for traditional publishers, even though I understand it's very difficult now to break into the traditional market and it's almost equally as competitive because from what I've read, there are approximately 3,000 books published every day. So the really? Yes. I mean, that's globally around the world. And so um, in all of the different genres, too, I mean, it's, okay. it must be 25 different genres of writing, you know, from novel fiction, biography, horror stories, adventure, thrillers, uh, cookbooks, uh, you know, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a lot of competition, but I, I really would like to celebrate it more. And again, back to my awards, the awards from the Independent Press Awards is just really impressive to me. Okay. And Henry's book, uh, my first book, was recognized at the Harlem Book Festival for the QBT Award, which is the Black Quarterly um, QBR, Black Quarterly Review, uh, which, you know, I was really impressed. I went to New York and went to Columbia University and the Harlem Book Festival had put on this big show. And, you know, I stood out in the street with all of the other vendors selling my books. And so uh, it, it's been quite a journey. So I've been done book shows and, and lectures. I've been to the Reginald Lewis Museum and the public schools and, and uh, Baltimore and, and in DC, but I want to, I'm like Henry, I want to spread out too. And I need 15 more years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write your book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. All right. That's good. Now that, now that you said that and it is recorded. Oh no, no. It's going to, it's going to be in the back of your mind until you retire. <laughs> and when you retire, that's what you're going to do. Actually, you may not know this yet. I'm I'm 38. Um, Are I'm you reti- real? Yeah, I'm retiring in two years. <laughs> in two years, I'm retiring. I said I'm not doing no more work for anybody else. I'm not doing it. Well, I'm working for myself. Well, you look well cared for at 38 years old. You look like a very young man. Someone has taken very good care of you. I will lose my um, the genetics. I think from my mum. She still looks okay. like she's 25. Uh-huh. Okay, so um. Do you have your books? Are they available as audio books or is it just like hard paperback, hardcover? No, all of them are available in hardback, paperback, and electronic versions. What are uh, audio audio books? Have you read them as audio books? Have I read them? Yeah. Well, well, I wrote them, but I have actually I haven't read them since uh, when I when I got this thing sent out. Mm-hmm. I was 
when you have this experience of writing, you are so sick of the manuscript. It's like doing your doctoral <laughs> dissertation or your thesis. You just want it over with. You, you don't want to see it again or smell it again. But no, I, I, I haven't sat down to read them because I want them to sort of uh, permeate a little bit more for me. I mean, I'm sure I will sit down and read all of them. And I think I did read my first book once and, and my compliment to myself was Henry should be damn pleased with what I did here, you know, uh, in writing his biography. Um, and, and when I wrote my, my third book of time and spirit, uh, which is a tribute to my dad, um, that was just sort of insightful to me because, you know, one of the more touching things that my dad did, and it was, there were many, but we were not close. I mean, we, I was a mother's boy I, and I was the baby and I was seven years behind my brother, though he says it's six years and 11 months because he was born in June. I was born in May, but I won't figure. I'll just say seven years and round it off. Um, and, um, and so when I came out, I mean, I knew that I was gay, but I was also Catholic and I knew we would, I went to confirmation, catechism, Sunday school, Bible school, all of that Christian Catholic Catholicism routine, you know, the bureaucracy yeah. lived on military base and on military properties. And so therefore it was this whole male macho attitude. Yeah. So I knew not to tell anybody that I was gay, you know, or, or to come out. It just didn't feel like as a child, it was a safe thing to do in the environments mm -hmm. that I was in. Um, but when I finally graduated undergraduate school, I just got so tired of keeping it in from my parents because my parents were very good to me. And I ended up, in my opinion, getting more because they had more to give. You know, they, they, you know, I mean, I had more material things and got my driver's license. They paid for the insurance. They paid for my undergraduate degree. You know, I mean, I was sort of a fortunate child with my parents, so I didn't really like the deception. Uh, but I came home from my very first, I guess you say, gay party or, you know, a, a setting where there were all gay people. And I had never seen anything coming from the rural environment that I had come from like that. And I was telling my mother how excited it was because we talked on the phone every Saturday and in the week as well after I graduated. And so she said, who is she? Meaning who was my date? You know, who was my girlfriend? And I thought, mm. so I, I called her. I said, and I asked my dad, I said, are two of you going to be home? And I got in my car, my little yellow Volkswagen, which is German, by the way, um, and went home to my German. <laughs> and, to, and told my parents and my mother just went through all of this drama what did I do wrong I tried to raise you right I really for my kids this whole guilt trip she was just pouring all of it my dad is sitting there you know watching this theater between my mother and I because she started crying and then I started crying because she was crying because nobody wants to see their mother crying I mean it was just pure drama okay and my dad says out of nowhere I mean, my dad says, and this was so important to me, he just looked at my mother and he said, how could you not know Maurice has been like this all of his life? <laughs> and like right there, 
he diffused 23 years of my anxiety because after yeah. my mother and father, I didn't give a rat's behind what anybody else felt because I yeah. you, know, you take your war marks, you know, I mean, even, you know, being black and gay, you, you know, you, you're going to get it. But the only people I wanted to have integrity with was with my mother and father. So when yeah. my dad said that, um, it may, it soothed everything over for my mother and it took the guilt away from her since I was a mother's boy because she didn't want to be responsible for having raised a gay child. I mean, mm -hmm. but she didn't, I mean, in that generation, they didn't understand uh, gay rights like we have it today and, and mm -hmm. the rainbow flag and the protests and the demonstrations. And then of course, in my generation, AIDS came along and you know, she said she'd rather me be dead than one of them. And, oh, oh she just had all of this yeah. drama. And, um, but anyway, after I told them the truth, um, then it was on them to accept or deny. And at that point, I was self-sufficient and standing just barely, but, uh, you know, taking care of myself. But, um, but anyway, they, they, they stuck by me. But my dad was, that was one of the things that I wrote in the book that just, you know, just sort of sealed my relationship with him because we didn't communicate. I had a very difficult time communicating. My dad was very scholarly. He was well-read. He liked music and culture. He liked urban things. And, um, and of course, I wanted to be with my mother. I wanted to go shopping and have designer clothes and, you know, I wanted <laughs> cars and, you know, nice restaurants. So my dad and I, my dad was not materialistic in that kind of thing. So, Okay. That, that's how the third book, you know, came into existence. So what did your parents do then? Because you said you was privileged. And I guess when you was a young lad, America is not really the place it is today. You know, there was all this whole idea of the American dream and, you know, you can work hard and get what you want. But that wasn't really true for the African-American people like us. So what did your parents do that made you, that allowed you to have a privileged life? Well, I, I, can't, I, I don't want to uh, leave your you or anybody to think that I had a privileged life. I really didn't have a privileged life, but the secret for my parents is that our household, they were survivors. My, mm -hmm. my parents were not college graduates. Um, they worked for the federal government. My dad was military for a while. When working for the government, you have some level of security. So we always had a paycheck every two weeks. And as the years went by in their 30-year careers each, they got little incremental cost of living raises and promotions along the way. Mm. And when I allude to the fact that I was the lucky one, in my opinion, uh, in terms of money and materialism, by the time I was born, seven years after the first child, my parents had more, you know, yeah. they had but they had worked for it. So, I mean, we always had a roof over our head and food and clothing, but we didn't have vacations and, uh, and ski trips and, you know, private school and, you know, those kind of things. We were just a basic, uh, probably lower middle-class family that went to, they, my parents went to work, the children went to school, we went to church on Sunday and we celebrated holidays. That was our life, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, New Year's. I mean, and that was the whole the whole picture. So with, with that station in life, it left a lot for me to aspire to because I, I 
you know, I love traveling. I like vacations. I like nice restaurants. I like expensive clothes. I like, you know, I mean, I like living a fuller life. I like going to the theater and paying for the tickets. I like going to New York and see a Broadway play. I like taking the train and the plane. I like cruises. I like seeing, <laughs> we didn't have all of that when yeah. I grew up. I mean, so I, I wasn't that privileged. I just was the benefactor, the beneficiary of my mother and father's hard work, you yeah. know, no. so their combined years of working made 60 years of federal government service. And so they lived comfortably, but they didn't buy their first home until uh, they were 40 years old. I mean, they okay. didn't have money to buy a house. I was 13 years old when we had our own house and moved out of government housing. And when I say government, it wasn't government subsidized. It was just federal government army property. So, mm. so anyway, that's my story. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I just want to let you know that one of my very best college girlfriends uh, just zoomed in and said she liked the painting behind me. So I want her to see this painting. Nice. I was going to say that. <laughs> Like you represented, man. I like it. Like, that's like that's some... my girlfriend Trina Taylor. So I'm just giving her a plug here. But anyway, <laughs> okay. I want to I want to go back a bit because um, obviously you're you're African American. You're part of the LGBTQ. LGBTQ. Oh, sorry, man. I'm not well versed in that stuff. LGBTQ uh, and some other things now. Yeah, I'm sorry. It just gets. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's not. It's not ignorance. It's just I, I. can't keep up anymore. I'm like, okay, wait, wait. I was with you with the L, the G, the B. I'm sure there's a T in there. There's a Q, and and, and I don't really know the differences. That's what makes it really hard for me. I'm like, what's the? I don't know what the difference is. Well, see, you've identified yourself. You're not in any of them. <laughs> well, actually, well, where where would I, is we should be in there too, actually. S. What's the S? Oh, straight. <laughs> but but you're but you're the dominant group. I mean, you're the you're the one who casts aspersions on my group. <laughs> but, but, uh, um, uh, see, that's the thing. Is that's like like black people. You know, one black person. <laughs> we're all grouped in together. You're the criminal. And I'm like, wait, I don't. I can do anything. I just. I just need. I just exist. That's it. But um, so anyway, so well, anyway, it's all good. It's yeah, all it's, good. it's all good. It's all friendly, peaceful. I I, I love everybody. You know, my, my best friend is is, is white. The <laughs> 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 a classic. The racist always yeah, says my best once friend is black. Start that. It's a long list of best friends who are. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So, and then you use Catholic. So how? I mean, look, like to me, in my opinion, I think it's the, it's the hardest when you're black, female, lesbian. I mean, that's the hardest you can get. If you're that, you've got, you're like, your handicaps all over the place. But for a male who's African-American and you're also part of the Catholic community, how was that? Like, how do you navigate around that? Because that's just... Being it, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. I mean, of course, when you're a child, you know, you obey, in my generation, you obey your parents, you go to church and you're baptized and confirmed mm -hmm. in Holy Communion, you go to church on Sunday, you put on a necktie and, you know, you behave yourself and you sit still. However, in my generation and where I went to church, which was on a federal government property, mm -hmm. Edgewood Arsenal, we went to the chapel, but we had to sit in the back of the church in the choir law for the gallery. 
Blacks were not allowed to come into the main sanctuary of the church. Um, and of course, as a kid, that didn't bother me. But um, one of the things that was fascinating to me is that the chapel was very well appointed for um, a church. And in the center of the sanctuary was red velvet carpet, a plush, real nice plush carpet. And as a kid, I loved my feet crunching on, on that carpet. It just seemed, and it was red, it was blood red. So I'd get in church and break away from my mother and run down the center of the sanctuary and go sit myself, you know, as a four or five year old child up on the first row where the majors, the generals, the captains with their, all of the officers with their wives and children sat. Mm -hmm. And my parents wouldn't come and fish me out. They just let me sit there because nobody bothered, but my parents didn't want to create a scene. This is the Catholic church. So, I mean, the, the military was segregated. The church was segregated. And so, um, when the church was over, my dad grabbed me by the arm and he would say, you know, Maurice, it's better for you to sit in the back and be asked to come from the front than to sit in the front and be told to get in the back, you know? So, I yeah. mean, that was his, you know, that was his way. I mean, it wasn't a chastisement, but, you know, it was his way of saying, don't do that anymore, you know, it's, it, because they're going to tell you to come in the back, but they never did. And I was sort of precocious, you know, I mean, I was the baby. I mean, I didn't care. I mean, you're a kid, you just do what you want. But then when you grow and, you know, and I had to go to confession and bless me, Father, if I have sinned. And I grew up and found out that, you know, the men that I were preaching to, I mean, or saying for confessing my sins to be absolved of sins were human beings like the people I lived around, you know. Yeah. So, no. You begin to see the hypocrisy of the church. And then when you you continue to live your adult life and you find out the hypocrisy within the church, within the Vatican, you're going to, you know, it's segregation in the in the church, and and then they're homophobic. And and yeah. at the same time, I had the gay priests who were hitting on me, you know. So <laughs> And I won't go further with that, but I mean, but <laughs> no, no, please do. We want to leave everything at the table. So you know, you you. I mean, and I, I mean, and I believed in this indoctrination. I mean, it's really kind of sad and pathetic because here in Washington D.C. is where the national we have a shrine here, the Catholic over at Catholic University, mm -hmm. and at and at 35 years old, I was still going to confession, confessing what I considered my sins. Mm -hmm. Because I figured if God didn't hear him from the Catholic Church, from the National Shrine, he wasn't going to hear it. And I don't know when the light went off in my head that this is indoctrination. It's I mean, it's it's just pure indoctrination. And so it was another level. And then there were so few Catholic blacks that I knew. And when I went to school, I mean, a number of my classmates thought you know, how can you be black and Catholic? You know, you needed to be Baptist or Protestant. You know, you need to be some something other than Catholic because Catholic was, I mean, they didn't believe in all of that. So, I mean, you have to learn the whole religious uh, hierarchy. I mean, whether it's Judaism, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, you know, and I church hopped and, you know, and now all of that soul searching, you have to do a lot. So the church to me was really kind of messy. So I believe in a supreme being and I do pray, 
but I'm, I'm really over the Catholic church in terms of being a good representative for them because I, I and my dad refused to let me go to Catholic school and he went to Catholic school yeah. in Baltimore, but he, you know, he refused to let my mother send us to Catholic school. Uh, but she believed, you know, let them get, you know, let the children get a good solid foundation of, basic education and then let them make their own decision when they grow up but she never liked catholicism either because the mass was said in latin and nobody understood so you didn't <laughs> have a sense of spiritual enrichment i mean yeah. unless you knew latin um so there you know you were just following you just were followers you were literally flocked like you are yeah. in a church and then the whole thing with ties and when i got to the vatican for the first time in my life and all these starving, hungry people are sitting outside of the Vatican. And you go inside and the curator tells you that the value, the dollar value of the Vatican is incalculable because the diamonds, rubies, sapphires, turquoise, onyx that they use to build the mosaics that they put in the Vatican were not, there was not an international standard of measure. So some of the stones are very thick, some are small, you know, and they can't even estimate the value. And I'm thinking, now, this isn't right. And then you've you got the church and they're pro-slavery. So, yep, 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 yep. So, I mean, you know, and, and when, when you're devout, my grandmother was devout Catholic. She wouldn't even allow you to come in her house if you hadn't been to mass on Sunday. That was just, that was total sacrilege in her mind. Mm. But, you know, as, as the years go by and, and the news and the media reveals more and more about all churches and all religions. Uh, I think people's minds and attitudes are changing. Mine has certainly changed. Um, and, and then when I look at the atrocities that take place in the world, even today, you know, you wonder who's orchestrating this. I mean, is somebody really out there watching over you, but you know, it's something. So, <laughs> you know, you honor, you honor that. But I mean, I had to work through I mean, I couldn't even believe that I was 35 years old, still going to confession, you know, mm -hmm. confessing to, you know. Somebody else. He's probably not as clean as you. That's the worst thing. Well, you know what? Well, I mean, not to be arrogant, but I mean, I felt almost as moral as some of them because, I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't think they were more moral than me because, I mean, even though I had my, my indiscretions as well, but they were having indiscretions and not sure. representing the indiscretion they're representing piety and superiority and dominance over me yep. so you know and and i think that's a lot for people all people you know not just me uh you know you have to work and make your choices and so yep. at my tender age i have bloomed to this wonderful character you see on screen <laughs> fabulous <laughs> 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 oh, well, yeah. so going back a little bit so you said you came out well you knew you was um gay when you was four years old because i have someone in my family who um is actually now they said they knew that they weren't born the way they were when they was little as four but we didn't really believe it because we was a bit like you know like obviously among the black people we're a little bit more like if you're if you're gay you're strange especially like i'm jamaican and Jamaica's the worst, you know, Jamaica's the worst people for it. So when, when our family member told us that they weren't 
who they they said they were supposed to be, we was all like, no, nah, come on, stop playing with us, stop playing with us. But then you saw them dedicate their life to being the other person that they were. And he was like, actually, I believe them. I believe them. Was that the sort of same thing with you when you was like, look, I'm gay and you was met with, actually, no, because you never really told anybody, but how did you feel inside? Well, you know, that's um, a great question, Alice. Alice Anyway, Astelio, Astelio. Yeah, Astelio, okay. <laughs> you, I, I have always felt alone, mm-hmm. but I also felt that I was taught by my parents, but especially my mother, to be alone. Okay. And my one of the things that my dad used to say was, Maurice, always be prepared to tie your shoes and walk away. Uh, and, and the message up underneath of all of that is that don't let anybody bring you down to the point that you can't even walk away. Mm-hmm. Know how to sustain yourself and, and move, you know, to move on because people, because I was sort of a high feeling, emotional, touchy feely child. And he said, you're not going to get that in life. You know, life is not going to give you touchy feely. So I've always felt alone because um, uh, when we when schools were integrated, I was the only black person of 460 seniors in my high school class. So, I mean, I'm just at, at, at the time in 1964 where it's riots and John F. Kennedy has been killed. Bobby Kennedy has been killed, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all of these people. I mean, the, the country is in turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're a, the, the Catholic church was predominantly white where I went to school. So you're alone there because you're not really welcome. Um, and then to be gay, you, you know, the dominant society oppresses and still oppresses, you know, through the church principally. Yeah. Um, so you have to learn to, you have, I mean, my parents wanted me to learn to be adjusted, to stand on your feet and that people are not going to always be there to nurture you, support you and love you and adore you. Like I needed to be loved, as you can mm. probably tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I needed a lot of attention. So, um, <laughs> and they just taught me, you're not going to always have that. So, you know, when, when they are not present and you're, in your house or in your space or in your classroom, in your school by yourself, you have to learn to live with yourself by yourself. And that's what, and that's what I do, but you know, it's, it's an alone feeling, but um, I have had two long-term significant relationships. So that, that softened it a bit. Mm. Okay. I just wanted to say to you, have you ever tried um, like being a Buddhist or something? Have I tried to be a bully? A Buddhist, a Buddhist. A Buddhist. No, um, I, I like Buddhist teachings. I mean, I think the, the philosophy of Buddhism um, is nice. And, you know, I did a lot of church hopping. I mean, I went to Jewish synagogues. And I, even when I was at Catholic, I mean, in, in the university setting as a student, I went to uh, different kind of masks and, and different denominations of religions. But, you know, my conclusion is that I don't think you know, when I look at these uh, TV shows at, or even go to a church, uh, which is rare, but when they say God said, you know, and God said, you know, yeah. I'm thinking they don't know what the hell they're talking about because they've <laughs> never seen God. I mean, how about the hell 
they know what God, what God, and they say it so convincingly. convincingly. <laughs> and then you look at this mega church and all these people are sitting on the edge of their seat, believing what they, this man is saying God said. And how in the hell would you know what God said? I mean, I think we all have a sense of spirituality. I mean, I do think we have voices and spirits and, and, and yoga and meditation and worship of sun and falling on knees and rituals yeah. and pageantry and ceremony. But I don't think it's intended for us to know. I, 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 I don't think it's intended for us to know or at least it hasn't revealed itself. Oh, we've me. forgotten. I, I'm sorry. Oh, we've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe we've forgotten it. I don't. I don't know. But but see, when you go too far back in history, before the birth of Christ, and you know the Egyptian period, the Roman period, the Ottoman period. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I don't even know what happened last year. You know, because I mean, <laughs> you know, we had Donald Trump for four years, so I know oh, that much. Oh God, uh, this guy. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I try not to wrap too much energy in that. What are you drinking? <laughs> That's um, I don't even know what it is. Some sort of tea, man. It's delicious. So, yeah, I, I know. I know. Okay, whatever. Some relaxing, uh, relaxing magic tea. I don't know. It, all I know is it looks like raspberries. Oh, okay. So that's why you have that baby skin. <laughs> I got that from my mom and my dad, I believe. Especially my mom. I would say more my mom than my dad. Yeah, that that that's this um, Jamaican. I don't know some sort of. So, are you in Jamaica now? Or are you in Italy now? No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh I mean, are you in England? Where are you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, in Germany. Oh, you're in Germany. Okay. Yeah, because you, you said the um, the joke about the Volkswagen being a German car, and I was like, I don't, I don't really align to being German. Um, not actually, technically, I'm a German citizen now, but I'm still a British citizen too. Uh, my family's born in Jamaica. I have a affinity to Brazil, and okay. when I was growing up, I loved Italy. Okay. So um, I learned Portuguese, Italian. I'm learning Italian at the moment. I speak German, English. Uh, yeah. So you're quite universal. I'm universal. Yeah, I love traveling like you. Uh, I've been pretty much all over the world now. Mm-hmm. No, actually, I, I could I could go as far as to say I could die happy, and not I would never have to leave the place where I live now, and I'd be happy uh-huh. because I've traveled to so many different countries. I've seen a lot of the uh-huh. world. Mm, now, does so. the world seem small to you? Um, the world seems foreign. I think it's kind of unfair. Like, like for example, I'm trying to move to Brazil because I feel like that's where my soul aligns to a country like Brazil. Um, okay. sim- simply because I've been like 38 years in Europe and I've had enough of living around the European way of life, just mm-hmm. to make it keep it nice and you know <laughs> friendly. So now I'm like, I'm ready for a country where like so Africa would be nice, uh, South America would be nice, even Asia. I would go to Asia, but only some countries like Thailand or something or Vietnam or somewhere. So I just can't deal with the Western world anymore. It's just not for me. It's comfortable. It's, you know, a lot of security. Believe me, I live a privileged life. I'm not rich, but my life is comfortable. But right. I'm looking for something else. You know, I'm looking for a spiritual journey again, but a longer one. And I want to be in, I want to be under the sun. <laughs> I can't take winter. I can't take uh-huh. winter. 
So uh, uh-huh. that's um, that's me in a nutshell, basically. I'm not okay. I'm kind of stuck in a place where I don't want to be, and I'm working towards getting out. Mm-hmm. That's it. So anyway, your last so write, book. So write your book, write your journal, write your book, and you will find a lot of self-discovery in your writing. That's because true. Because I have found that there are things that I've learned about myself in writing that have passed through my mind that it just, that just passed through. But when you put it down on paper, mm. you know, with the hurt and the pains and the good, the bad, the ugly, and the different, indifferent, uh, the different, uh, which is what I did in From Whence We Come. No. Uh, it, you know, I, it, it's like I haven't had to have pity parties of feeling sorry for myself or feeling bad because I have it all sort of in a volume. And mm-hmm. if I feel like I need to go back and revisit that part of my life, I can go. But in writing from whence we come, I almost found my place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I don't have to blame my mother or my father for something or somebody else for something or this happened to me. Because a lot of bad things happened to me in my lifetime, too, but a lot of good things. And, um, and I think DNA is important, um, is important too. Yeah, I think um, we, we tend to, especially come from our background, we have like parents who didn't really know what they were doing. Even when you talk about the black community in church, the fact that we haven't moved away from church when we know that, first of all, church was brought to us, you know, when we were sitting in Africa, chilling in the bush around a campfire, singing Kumbaya, there was no church. We had our, maybe our, I don't know if it was voodoo or obia. I don't know what it was, but we was like, we had a spiritual connection directly with God. And then some guy came from Europe, some Samaritan, and was like, basically, look, uh, this is God's world, accept it. And we was like, okay. Or uh, I guess it didn't go like that, but that's how we believe it. That's how I believe it went. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. we was enslaved. You know, we got all our land stolen. Um, it was taken away to another mm-hmm. country where, it's, where it doesn't even fit our biological makeup was cold our food is not there you know all kind of rubbish and all that in the name of religion uh-huh. and like you said they kept us as slaves showed us a paragraph which you couldn't read anyway because we weren't allowed to read and said okay uh-huh. we were allowed to keep you as a slave because it says here in the bible and since right. then we've been bashed over the head with the bible and that's why i would never i would i'm personally i'm not i wouldn't consider myself an atheist i would say i'm more of a gnostic but i would always align to the buddhist religion because i believe that the way they like go about things is much more makes more sense. It's more peaceful somehow. I guess there was no. Well, way yeah. To- I mean, and I think we're all. I think we're all looking for peace. But I, I, I mean, my my journey and my experience is that it it really is hard work to find that level of peace on Earth. And some days, even when you have those moments of purity um, and excellence and calmness in your soul and the world's running smoothly for you on that day. All you need to do is turn on the television here and it could, it could just descend, you know, because you're seeing, you know, murders and killings and rob robbery. Yeah. And I mean, like I say, even when I travel and, um, you know, I've been on a couple of world cruises, I've been on over 50 cruises, but I mean, the last two were world cruises and, um, and I look at the religions from all over the world and I've seen the Buddha and, you know, I mean, I've seen a whole bunch of them, but um, I, I just think it's work that we have to do on our own to come to a level of contentment. And I know that I have come closer to my level of contentment because I can discern what I've, what I observe 
other people who haven't arrived as far along on the journey. Because I have um, a few people in my life who have not learned the word gratitude yet. They, they oh. haven't become grateful, which is what uh, a word my dad taught me, actually, um, for what they do have. And some of them have beautiful homes, beautiful children, Mercedes, nice yeah. cars and fur coats and jewelry. But they're still hankering for more they want more and they're whining they're uncomfortable because all of these things that they are adding to their life doesn't give them the peace that they want and sometimes you you we look for happiness in possessions but uh and i did that too when i was young but i mean you when you get to the point where you have everything that you want and you still aren't where you feel like you want to be you don't have that sense of uh, of contentment um, I think you're always going to be unhappy. I think we have to learn to be content with what we have. I mean, and even when it comes to simple things, um, I have some friends too at my age, of course, who have health problems, a, lot, a number of us do, but, you know, they're not grateful for their sight, their hearing, or, or mm -hmm. you know, that they can get up and walk and go to the bathroom on their own. This, you know, they just complain, complain, complain with this, mm -hmm. this, 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 and the whole world becomes absorbed in this one issue of pain, but there's so many other things about their health that's good. So why don't we just like look at the health, you know, the good things that we do and and work with the things that, you know, are not. But I, I think gratitude is is really important for maturity as you you go along where you're, I mean, because I think the peace is within. I don't think the peace is without. Um, I think that without is an environment for you to be peaceful. So, I mean, I think you need, you know, we need to learn uh, to be peaceful from within. And then when we find a nice environment to put ourselves in, then it, then, you know, it's wonderful. I mean, because you have it within and then you have the surroundings, you know, to go yeah. with it. So the inner truth, basically the inner truth that we are. Yes. Like, like you said, I think uh, the most important thing, thing to me at this stage of my life is my health. I don't care about anything else. I could live on the street as long as I'm healthy. That's all that matters. You know, my wife, yeah. for example, she's always worried, oh, we don't have enough for this. We don't have enough for that. And I'm like, as long as I'm breathing and I'm healthy, we'll always have a chance to get whatever we want. Always. Right. You know, the moment you can't, you're not breathing, you, you know, you lose a limb or you start getting sick, one of the bad diseases, coronavirus, then, you know, you can start sweating. But until then, you're good. And people don't understand that. They just want to get more, more. Mm -hmm. I'm not rich. I don't have 25 figures on my account. You're like, 25 figures? Yeah. That's going to be boring too at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, what the, I, I don't know how long we do. We've kind of just wag, chin wagging away, actually. <laughs> kind of forget at the time. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? You what? Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Oh, no. I just want I just want the listeners to know about my website. I want them to purchase my book. My website is www.maurecewdorsey.com. Um, and this is my first book, Businessman First. Um, it's a two-time award winner from the Harlem Book Festival and Independent um, Press Awards. My second book is From Whence We Come, and you'll recognize that when you buy it, <laughs> and translate it and translate it into German. 
Uh, and this, oh, is, God. this is the novel. And then this is my third book of Time and Spirit, a tribute to my dad, um, which also won the Independent Press Award. I mean, I really was doing it this year. I had absolutely no idea that all three books um, in, in the category, in the genres that they were, were going to be uh, recognized. And so um, that's all. And I want to thank, I have to thank my girlfriend, Trina Taylor, for coming on. She's been really a wonderful friend. We went to college together. She's a very, very grand lady. Uh, and uh, I want to thank her since I saw her message come up on my, and everybody else who joined uh, in. Uh, in, in because, you know, we had a hard time calculating the time, you know, because the first, when you sent the first message, it just said nine, nine o'clock, but it didn't have, I think it had 9 p.m., but it didn't have the time zone. Yeah. So, and then it had Brussels, Rome, Italy, Vienna, and all these <laughs> other countries. And I'm thinking, well, where is this man? <laughs> I mean, but, all uh, the countries. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but anyway, I want to just thank you very much, and thanks to everybody who was who was able to tune in. And uh, I appreciate you. I wish you all the best in what you're doing, and yeah. um, continuing to support writers and authors and encourage them to write. And I'm wishing you sure, the very, sure. and I'm wishing you the very best in your Buddhist journey of finding oh, peace. Oh, <laughs> what I want you to do, son and son. Yeah, it's a, what I want you to do. I'm going to write it again. I want you to record your book as an audio book. And then I'm going to get it off Amazon Kindle. Not Amazon Kindle. Uh, and Audible. Audible. Right. So record your book with your voice. I want it to be your voice. I want you to read your own book on Amazon Audible and then publish it. I'm going to buy it off there. You want me to, to do a, a voice recording of each of my books? Yes. On your show? No. Look. Not on my show. You do it for you, and I'm going to buy it from you. Well, they're already well. They're already um, uh, digital books. I mean, you can buy electronic versions of the book, but you want my voice. I want your voice. Oh, yeah. Well, that's going to take a while because I'm writing a fourth book. I mean, in theory, you could probably get for a book in about a week if you read about eight hours a day. Maybe even maybe one book would take eight hours actually. You know what? Well, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't, I'm, I've been offered that service before. I just didn't want to pay for the service. I mean, what I have paid to publish these three books mm. offset to my income off of the books. Yeah. It's, I'll it's never, I'll never recover what I've spent, <laughs> what I've paid for these books. But anyway, I have enjoyed the process. And <laughs> at my age, I can't take the money with me. So I just doing what I want to do. So. Okay, maybe we but can I find will, someone. I will to do. give it some thought. Yeah, maybe we can find someone to do it for free for you. I know a couple of people who can read really well and um, could do that. No, I mean I don't mind reading it. I just don't want to have to pay to read it after I paid for hardback, paperback, and electronic versions. I mean, uh, uh, that's true. Obviously, you can tell I have no problem talking. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually do it yourself. Just get yourself a microphone. Like get yourself a recording program. You don't seem like a guy who doesn't uh, can't learn that quickly. No, you can do it yourself, actually. Just send it to someone like me who could post edit it for you because I'm an engineer by trade. I could post uh -huh. edit it and, and then it's, it's pretty much done. Uh-huh. Yeah? So that's your options. All right. Well, I uh, thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. Hey, keep in touch. I'm going to get you back on soon. We're going to have to um, talk about your fourth book. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to it. And um, I, again, I I uh, thank you. And my website. And you go to my website. Did you go to my website? I'm on your website right now. Uh, okay. Um, and and tell your friends to buy my book because that's what I need right now. I want. I need my ego sort of built up a little bit more. <laughs> and my wallet. Yeah, yeah, that's so, so that I can take Katrina out to lunch. <laughs> Which was the hurricane. I mean, not Katrina, Trina. I got a girlfriend. Okay. I had a coworker named Katrina, and this, but my girlfriend is Trina. Trina Brown. Trina Taylor Brown. Yeah, yeah I see, ya, I see. Ya. She's very grand, let me tell you, <laughs> and a humanitarian like you will never ever know before in your life. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Okay. Yes. I think I see it. Yeah, yeah, I see her profile. All right. Mr. Dorsey, we'll catch up. Remember what I said? All my little book. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. And thank thank you for having me. You're welcome anytime. And stay in touch, okay? Okay. All right. right. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.